Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning. Welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, a professor turned musician on using the medium as a teaching tool. And lots of fans are drawn to how Wes Anderson movies look, but a Valley Ensemble is exploring how they sound. But first, it is time for the Friday newscap and some voices from the news this week. There are very powerful people who want to keep you out. Oh, they do. But they're willing to put their money where their mouth is in a big way. So, this conversation never happened. This is crazy, though. They should want me. I'm a great candidate. People love me. These people are corrupt. A few days ago, out of the blue, I just started watching it. And I was so horrified by what I heard. It was so much worse than what I remembered it being when I was in the middle of that conversation with Jeff DeWitt. So, yes... We're doing what Texas is doing, because we're trying to secure the border to protect our citizens. Let's stay focused on what this bill is simply saying is, you can't sell something that you don't have the legal right or possession of that actually belongs to someone else. Her response was um, uh, really unexpected, um, took us all by surprise. Uh, It was uh, laced with profanities about several members of the city of Tolson. And with me to talk about Jeff DeWitt resigning as chair of the state Republican Party amid charges of bribery, a new state effort to deal with immigration and more, or Lorna Romero-Ferguson of Elevate Strategies. Hi, Lorna. Good morning. And Democratic strategist Tony Connie. Tony, good morning to you. Good morning. So, Lorna, we have to start with Jeff DeWitt, Kerry Lake, secret recordings. You guys both know this show is being recorded. Um, so this is not just a private conversation amongst friends. Thank so. you for the heads up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's, I, there's a lot, obviously, to unpack here. But Lauren, I'm curious, like, what are your sort of 30,000 foot takeaways from all of the stuff that went down this week? I, I mean, what a jam-packed five-minute audio clip that we were all um, blessed with this week. I mean, I just felt really uncomfortable listening to the entire thing because, one, the dialogue was so dramatic from both of them, right? Um, and, two, I mean, if Jeff DeWitt, if his goal was to convince Carrie Lake not to run for the U.S. Senate, right, which conversations like that happen all the time when, sure. when you talk to, to potential candidates, right? But, I mean, what— what a odd way to approach it. I mean, to talk about these, you know, these important, powerful people in the East Coast and, and then her making allegations that they're going to kill her if they don't do – if she doesn't do what they want. I mean, the whole thing was just absolutely bizarre. Um, and it just goes to show the, even more the dysfunction within the Republican Party that these are the conversations that are being had behind closed doors. Well, and, and also the number of times – now, former Chairman DeWitt said some variation of don't tell anyone this conversation never happened. Like to Lorna's point, these conversations do happen from time to time where somebody in a party will tell a candidate, hey, maybe it's not your time. Maybe, if, you know, this would be a better office for you. This this race doesn't look so good for you. But not they don't happen in this way. No, they don't. It, this is they don't happen in this way to everybody who's listening <laughs> They, normally, there's not a con- like. What'll happen is somebody will try and convince a bad candidate, which Carrie Lake is. Hey, maybe you shouldn't run. Maybe this is a better opportunity for you. 
Um, I'll support you if you do this in two years instead of now, this kind of stuff. You don't hear somebody say, hey, name your price. That, that, that part's not even normal, let alone the, you know, the stuff about you know, murder. I mean my big takeaway listening to this aside from just the dysfunction is how completely consumed with conspiracy theories the two most powerful Republicans in the state are that they – that this – it just – you know, like it just shows what's happened when you're surrounded by people that will continually push conspiracy theories. Apparently, you just start to believe more and more and more and it's just like a dangerous thing for these people to be in power if this is the way they view the world because I'm saying I do not believe that Carrie Lake would be murdered by these powerful rich people back east, right? Or maybe there are Republicans that are willing to do that kind of thing. I don't think so. Um, and so it's just it, – it, it, it just shows how she's not prepared to be in any sort of public position. Well, so Lorna, how does this impact her candidacy? I mean she went on, on Rumble that, that night to you know, talk about what happened and raise money off of it. Like, does this, how does this affect her, her Senate candidacy? I mean, it gives her something new to talk about, right? Um, she's not beholden to uh, the powerful, you know, moderate Republicans or the globalists, however they want to frame them th- th- that day. Um, so she'll use that. She's been using it to fundraise. I mean, immediately a fundraising right. e-blast went out. And so that's what she's going to capitalize on. And so she's just going to continue to use it in her stump speech to say, you know, even people in my own party are trying to, you know, knock me out. Even people who were once my allies, who were Trump supporters, et cetera. So, I mean, from a fundraising perspective, yeah, she'll be able to see an infusion of cash. I mean, it only solidifies her existing base. I don't know how... I mean, a few months ago, we were talking about how she was making the attempt, and I do this in air quotes, <laughs> to appeal to a broader audience yeah. and more of the moderate, centrist Republicans. This isn't the way to do it necessarily with this kind of narrative and these talking points. And so I'm not sure what the long-term strategy is. And I think it just ends up bringing up more questions of, you know, this absurd conversation happened 10 months ago. Why did you sit on it for so long? If you were absolutely appalled by the behavior and the words coming out of Jeff DeWitt's mouth, why did you wait till now? I mean, that's a legitimate question that she should answer. So you both talked about party dysfunction, but I'm curious, like, is that like what difference does that make in 2024? Like, does the fact that the state Republican Party is mired in this controversy and is now looking for a new leader. Like, does that how what kind of impact does that have on on Republicans running? Uh, Zero impact because the party has been um, not effective for probably a decade, if not more. Mm. I mean, major donors have been putting their cash elsewhere, not through the party infrastructure. The only thing that the AZ GOP under the leadership of Kelly Ward and others, all they've done is lose Republican seats. We lost statewide seats significantly. Um, because they catered to the Trump rhetoric and the Trump element of the party and not tried to broaden uh, their reach. Some had hoped that maybe DeWitt could bridge the gap. Obviously, we see where that's ended (laughs) up. But, I mean, the party in and of itself isn't all of a sudden going to become some kind of functioning entity after this. Well, and Tony, it's worth mentioning that, you know, Jeff DeWitt, to Lorna's point, was seen as somebody who could maybe, you know, work with both moderates and the the Trump base. But— it's worth noting that he worked for Trump in his administration and worked on both of his campaigns. This is not, you know, this is not some squishy rhino to, you know, to use a, a phrase that Kerry Lake might use. Yeah, I mean, he was the first person in Arizona to endorse Trump when he was looking for legitimacy. And yeah, I mean, I think so. I, I, the thing 
that I think this is going to do. The Republican apparatus, the way Lauren is saying, that's true. They're terrible, right? But I think the way this impacts candidates is this is like a big, sexy story. This is the kind of thing that somebody is going to just remember, right? Even if they're not political, like it's going to imprint in their mind. And I think it's just another in a string of these chaotic things that are branding the Republican Party as not serious, mm. as maybe weird or dysfunctional and all that kind of stuff. And so like even if people – it's not like people are going to – on the when they vote, they're going to be like, do you remember how that guy did X, Y, Z? But instead, it it you know it it starts to convince people that the that Republicans can't be trusted, or there's something weird going on with Republicans. And I think that you know enough of this stuff happens, especially in Arizona, that it's part of the reason why Democrats are winning in races. That mathematically, if there was you know a normal Republican Party and a normal Democratic Party, would be more challenging for Democrats with you know the voter registration numbers. And so I think that that's very significant. Tony, do you think there are going to be more tapes coming out either with Jeff DeWitt or other people? Oh, geez. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I hear a lot of people like hope that Stephen Richer and his defamation lawsuit against Carrie Lake tries to subpoena some of these recordings, you know, so that they come out. I, of course, just as a person who likes the drama, would be really interested in <laughs> really interested in that. But, uh, you know, I, I guess it depends on how much money think she thinks she can get from each one of these recordings that she releases for fundraising. And, you know, and also whether or not there are people who she met with during her tour of mainstream Republican business type people. If they start turning on her, is she going to start releasing audio from like the conversations that she secretly recorded of them when she was courting them? Mm. And yeah. so like I – we'll see. Like I, I don't know who's going to be willing to sit down with her and have a conversation if you're worried that she's going to be video recording you. So Lorna, this makes tomorrow's meeting of the state Republican Party just a touch more interesting, don't you think? <laughs> those are usually interesting just in general if you've ever participated or observed any of those. <laughs> but yeah, a lot more interesting. I mean now they're get, they are pushing their new slate. Um, of, you know, the Carrie Lake-backed candidates. And, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, Carrie Lake wanted to have a Republican Party leadership team that backed her 100%, right? Okay, that's what's going to end up happening. Great. But again, like I said, the apparatus itself is not going to be a well-oiled functioning machine to her benefit. It did not work out last election cycle for her. I don't think it's going to work out for her this upcoming election cycle. What I do think this creates, though, is an interesting environment where maybe Kirsten Cinema is going, hmm, maybe as I'm considering if I'm going to jump in or not, all of this internal dysfunction within the AZ GOP, maybe there's an opportunity to jump in and be the adult in the room. I don't know. If I was Kirsten, I'd be looking at this a lot differently now. That is really interesting. So one last thing on this. Uh, former President Trump is supposed to be in Phoenix this afternoon for a, a big fundraiser for the state party. That was canceled ostensibly because of he had to be in court in, in New York. Um, how significant is that? We talked about how the state party like has not done a great job of fundraising. This is a big one for them. Is this is this a significant uh, loss, potentially loss of, of fundraising for them? I mean, it's unfortunate for them, right? I mean, nobody likes to, having to cancel like a major event last minute, whatever. I mean, but I guess everyone should have probably thought about um, his his legal calendar and <laughs> court calendar. Right? I do love that the <laughs> Republican Party statement about this was, hey, listen. It wasn't our drama that made him cancel. It's not the DeWitt Lake thing. We promise. It's the fact that he's in court 
for you know whichever one of these. What a time to be alive, right? <laughs> he's so many he's the one. He, it's his dysfunction, not ours. Uh, Vote but, for us. But you know, Arizona is very important to Donald Trump, right? Yeah. And so he will be back. He'll right? make it up. He will make it up significantly, and he'll get a good turnout as he usually does in this state. And so, I mean, yes, it's a minor setback for them, but they probably have more important things to focus on right now than uh, the Freedom Festival. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I don't know if either of you are Taylor Swift fans. Yeah, I, I, I don't I am. presume anything. I'm no, I mean I respect her. I'm not a fan. Did you try I'm, to get either? You try to get tickets to the Eras tour? No. Yeah, yeah, I went, and I, I, my wife had, got, yeah, my wife got the tickets. Yeah, wow. I, went, I went with my at the time six month pregnant wife. Wow. So it you was, beat the bots. It was amazing. Yeah, we beat the <laughs> he bots. Beat the bots because that is we didn't it, have great seats though because of the bots. I would think not. But th- so this was, as it turns out, an issue at the state capitol this week. Uh, I guess we found out which lawmakers are Swifties and which aren't. Uh, the legislature is looking to prevent kind of the the mayhem that happened uh, during uh, Beyonce's tour and Taylor Swift's tour and other you know big sporting events and other big events where you know these bots buy up large groups of tickets and make it so that regular people can't do it. I'm curious, Tony, is like is this something that the state legislature can really enforce and regulate? I think I, – I, look, I don't know. I, I think that it's worth a try because the existing federal laws are obviously not working on this. And it's an opportunity – you know, Annalise Ortiz, who's the representative who's taking the lead on this, is a very smart, very effective legislator. And she is able to, you know, find Republicans to work with on this and, and this, this bill is going forward. And, you know, I think that even if it doesn't directly create a regulatory environment that fixes this problem – it is going to continue to put pressure on these companies to actually like try and you know be fair for consumers mm. and so you know i think that it's a great idea i'm glad that it got through committee and uh you know and i'm looking forward to see sort of what happens when it hits the floor this seems like the kind of bill that would be able to generate bipartisan support oh 100% i mean this is one of the consumer protection bills i think everybody understands and gets impacted by so whether or not you know these legislators themselves are swifties and try to get tickets or <laughs> try to get on behalf of their you know their children uh, i mean it's just it's ridiculous right but but the question is i mean technology is always ahead of of state law, federal mm-hmm. law, and yeah. whatnot. And so if we're going to, you know, ban certain practices or, you know, put some, you know, strengths and some regulations, these people are going to come up with another mechanism in which to do it, right, which is unfortunate. I would like for them to resolve it because I have Justin Timberlake tickets to buy next week and they go on <laughs> sale and I don't want to get beat out by the bots. And so yeah. some, make something happen within the next Maybe JT's listening. Call your legislator. Can, Justin you Timberlake, protect, protect your tickets, yeah, call, please. Call your legislator. Lord, it needs these tickets. Right. Let's go, everybody. <laughs> Absolutely. So a, a bill, bills that probably will not be getting bipartisan support are ones that are being labeled the Arizona Border Invasion Act. Uh, this is uh, being kind of compared both to uh, SB 1070 from Arizona's past, but also uh, the the bill recently in Texas that essentially created a state crime of being in the country illegally, which is a, a component of what SB 1070 did in the past. Lorna, this is obviously a very big issue, both in Congress with the, the Senate trying to come up with some kind of, of border policy, some kind of immigration reform. Now here... Given that Texas is – given what happened legally with SB 1070, given what's mm-hmm. happening legally with Texas's law, wh- why are we doing this? Well, I mean the reason why we're doing this is because of the epic failure from Washington, D.C. to do anything on this issue 
under Republican and Democrat administrations. It's just been an abject failure. Look at, I mean, SB 1070 passed in 2012 was the year. Um, And here we are 12 years later, and we're still talking about border security. Nothing has really significantly changed when Mm. it comes to border security policy um, in in Arizona or what the federal government have done. So people are frustrated. And I don't blame Republicans for introducing bills and having the conversations, right? They're not legitimately happening in Washington, D.C. I mean, Kirsten Sinema is trying to broker some kind of bipartisan deal. Now we're hearing Donald Trump doesn't want it to happen because he doesn't want to give Biden a win before the election. And so... You know, all of these petty politics end up getting in the way of meaningful reform, meaningful action. And so, yes, of course, local lawmakers are going to get frustrated and introduce bills and have the conversation. I mean, you got to keep the pressure on Washington, D.C. Tony, can this conversation in Arizona be productive? I mean, presumably, I don't think I'm going out too far on a limb here to say that if these bills pass the legislature, Governor Hobbs will veto them. But is it constructive still to have the conversation? I but it's not it's not being this isn't it would be constructive is to actually like sit down and have a conversation with people of the other party and the governor to say how can we actually do something that maybe is legal or you know or for them to come together and to contact the people within the republican party that are blocking the reform in the house side or the senate side and say hey you know what i understand you want to do some theater but like this is a real issue for us because i think one of the problems here is that like the number one rhetorical political issue of the republican party at all levels right now is immigration that's the top level, the top talking point. Yet, still, when they're closer than they, than maybe we've ever been to like meaningful reform packets that probably Democrats wouldn't love, right? That Senate is pushing through. It's you know, and, and senators on the Republican side have been saying like, "This is going to be the best deal you're going to get in your lifetime, House. Mm-hmm. Let's do it." That they that they're willing to block it. They're willing to block it for political reasons. I think it underlines a thing that's sort of been my perspective on this, which is that like. On the Republican side, the re- immigration reform is an excellent te- – or not immigration reform, but like you know, the border and immigration is basically where you go down to the border, where that weird jacket that they all wear and you do like a TV commercial, right? Like it's just – like I've always said like if I really wanted to make money in this business, I should set up a TV studio down there by the border <laughs> where I have that same weird brown jacket. Hey, and, some Democrats have done the same. Yeah, right, right. That's right. You know, I can get some Democrats to come in yeah. too. But it, it is – it's a thing where it's like – if this is the top issue, if this is the most important thing, can we please find a way to work together? You've got, you know, and I, a separate thing is it just sort of put the entire theory of the case of Kirsten Cinema to test, which is like she says I can bring these people together, but she's also backing, you know, this filibuster rule, which is going to require her to get sixty senators when she probably already has a majority of senators, and so you know it's very frustrating to see the dysfunction in D.C about this and know that it pr- probably could be solved if people were serious. Well, Lorna, like what would it take for let's say, let's just say on the state level for Republicans in the legislature and the governor or the governor's staff to really sit down and try to hash something out? Like is that is that even a possibility at this point? I mean, anything's possible, right? I mean, this is my optimistic <laughs> statement for this Friday morning. Thank you. Um but there needs to be the willingness to actually seek a compromise, right, rather than just using it as a political talking point or or, or political rhetoric, right? Um, I mean, Katie Hobbs mentioned the border and immigration in her State of the State address, right? I mean, that is for not, quite a while. For quite a while, um, and she's gone down to the border and she's met with border sheriffs and she she continues to talk about. She's sent letters, you know. She's she's criticized the the Biden administration on this stuff, and so. There is potentially a willing partner there. You just have to have the the actual conversation. It can't just be political theater at a public hearing. And so it really depends on 
who's going to sit down and have the conversation. It is possible, but we are in an election year. And as Tony mentioned, everyone's using this as like a political, you know, rod against the other person to just show how they're not really serious when it comes to border security. I I do want to say that probably 10, 15 years ago, you could have had at the state legislature a legitimate conversation between Republicans and Democrats when it came to immigration border security issues. I mean, Janet Napolitano is the one who signed the E-Verify law, Mm -hmm. you know, in the state, which now you have like Nikki Haley talking about it on the campaign trail that she, you know, she's implemented E-Verify in in South Carolina when she was governor. And so there was a time where you could work in a bipartisan way. And now it's just, it's not necessarily uh, the case as much anymore due to politics. Interesting. All right. So, guys, just a couple minutes left. I want to end with uh, something from yesterday, the second uh, hearing in the ethics case against uh, Democratic State Representative Lisa Sun. A couple more witnesses uh, came forward to talk about what they heard her say uh, at, a, at a conference. Tony, th- like this doesn't look all that great for Representative Sun. Do you think that she is able to maintain her position in the legislature when this is done? No. I don't I don't think so. I it it it's embarrassing and I think that Democrats very clearly and early on in the leadership said, "Hey, we need to take care of this." And they, you know, referred her to the ethics committee and so I don't know who's going to be voting to defend her if it ends up getting into an expulsion vote. And, you know, I mean, just, you know, don't be a weirdo. How about how about that? <laughs> How about that being a thing? <laughs> Am I going to get emails from people? That would be a people? great campaign like, slogan. Yeah. 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 Don't I'm, not, you, I'm don't, not a weirdo. I'm not a weirdo. And, you know, it's like, you know, I understand that, like, you know, I'm a guy who's, like, aggressive political and politically and that kind of stuff. But, like, let's take these weird threats of violence and this, like, what the heck? Like, just knock it off. It's yeah. ridiculous. Do you, do you think she survives? Uh, no, I don't think she survives. Um, and there doesn't seem to be any remorse on her part for some of, like, her behavior and the words that she's – I mean if somebody wanted to say like in the heat of the moment, I said something and I didn't mean it. Mm-hmm. I take full responsibility and accountability and I'm so and I'm so apologetic, then maybe people would view it differently. But she's so defensive about it and she claims there wasn't a balcony to even throw the person off of the what threat that weird, she made. Even so though weird. there's photos of this hotel where there is a balcony that you could have thrown someone off. So it's just all very strange and there's just no – I mean politics is weird enough. We don't need violent threats against people, especially – um, you know, local government employees that are harm- harmless. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it, it, the the whole, like her closing statement yesterday, she had to be cut off by the chairman of the ethics mm-hmm. committee because according to him, at least, she continued to like smack talk the people who had come to yeah, testify. Correct. Laura, to your point, not, not, not showing a whole lot of remorse. Exactly. You have to take responsibility for your words and your actions, and she's clearly not doing that. All right, we'll have to leave it there. That is Lorna Romero-Ferguson, Tony Connie also here. Guys, thanks so much for coming in. I appreciate it. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, how one musician creates art from archival research and family history. But first, Wes Anderson films are known for, among other things, their aesthetics. Fans often say they're drawn to the very specific visuals on screen. But what about how his movies sound? A Valley Ensemble is putting on a show this weekend of the music of Wes Anderson movies, Chris Norby is the composer and director of Cabaret. It shows Sonoran Dispatch, a play on the Anderson film The French Dispatch, is tomorrow night at the Van Buren in Phoenix. He stopped by the studio recently to talk about the project, and we started with where the idea of doing a live performance of music from Wes Anderson films came from. I think it was based off our Cabaret show that we usually do, which is a combination of uh, film scores and my original music. 
And it was actually, Charlie Levy was at that from Crescent Concerts. Mm -hmm. And some of my music, I realized, is quite similar to Alexandra Desplat's, the the composer. So I'm not sure. Maybe he saw it and went, oh, maybe he had the idea already and then he thought about it. But we spoke about it then and we thought, could could we do that? It's, it's, it's a different style than we usually do, but it's in the same universe, different world. So, like, Wes Anderson films, the visuals, like, people are, some people anyway, are really drawn to them. And there's a lot written and discussed about sort of his aesthetic and vibe visually. But since you're doing the music, how do you describe the sound of his films? Well, it's it really complements his films. They're perfectly framed and everything is neat and tidy. So the music has to work within that so he's got a he's great at selecting soundtracks. So what I find with the scores, for instance, compared to some of the scores we usually do, is that they're very uh, they're very neat and the, the the colors of them, the orchestral colors, are uh, quite simple in a way, and they don't change too much. They're not overly complicated, and I find them very well structured. And you know, it was quite easy to arrange them in a sense because of that. That sounds very much like how a lot of people describe the the visuals in his movies. Yeah. Complements it very well. Um, and if you watch his, turn the sound off in his films, and you'll see perfectly framed shots. They look beautiful, but they don't. They need the music to give them a bit of life. Yeah, it's such an important part. If he took the music out of his films, it's it's missing a huge part of the the charm of them. So you mentioned that the music from his films is very different than the music you typically play. In what way? Well, the music we do is a lot, and my own music is sort of complicated, and it's a lot from horror movies. Okay. So it's, it's often all over the place and very high energy and, and, and dark sounding and weird sounds, whereas this stuff is still orchestral. It's the thing that drew me to it is that I find the same influences I have. Some of the music we play, Bernard Herrmann and Danny Elfman, you can hear those influences, but the the difference is that they're just, they're neater. Everything is in the right place. There's no wrong notes. And so when I was arranging it, that was the first challenge or the first thing I had to realize. I can't put my own spin on this. Yeah. It has to be exactly what people are used to hearing. Exactly. And because I'm transcribing it all by ear, there's there's no scores. There, wow. there are scores, but it's too hard to get them. They're probably in some vault in Los Angeles. So when I was trying doing these things, I said, I have to get this as completely the right atmosphere, the essence of it. No messing around and keep that aesthetic of it. Do you have any particular favorites of, of songs that are in Wes Anderson movies? Oh, yeah. I mean, the one we play, Dollar Night, my favorite so far is the music from Fantastic Mr. Fox. That is really fun. And I'm looking forward. We haven't rehearsed it yet to doing the music from the Grand Budapest Hotel Okay, where we have a guest musician coming in Jacob Adler in town who's going to play it's called a, a, a chimbo so it's like a cymbal on it's a hammered dulcimer huh and that's going to be there's unusual instruments in this I can't wait to play that
So that's the scores. They were my favorite so far playing them. And the songs are just, they're so fun. We're doing Nico and uh, Les Paul, The Kinks. Okay. Yeah, I, re- I, I don't think there's any music on there that I don't like. It's, it's all really cool. What is it like, I mean, playing something that is so vastly different than what you usually not only perform, but what you usually write and compose yourself? Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was realizing that was the important thing. So just take my skills as an arranger, first of all. So don't try and put my own color on it. So in that sense, it was more of a technical type of job. Secondly was making sure we had the right group. So everybody in our group, it's not just orchestral players. They all play in bands and they all do different styles. So we had to get the right singers. And then with the the players, as I say, which is essential for me anyway, they can easily go into playing on a rock or a pop tune and at the same time play this sort of heavy orchestral music. So everybody, everybody involved can jump between the styles. If you don't have that, then it's a no-go. Yeah. So are you a fan of Wes Anderson movies? Yeah. My wife loves them. My daughter, that's mostly where I watch them. Okay. Now, anybody around town that knows my stuff, I like things a bit more rough around the edges. <laughs> Sometimes they're a bit perfect for me, but I do really appreciate them. And one of the things I zoom into when I watch them are the music scores and the songs. You know, they're they're great. You know, when we watched Asteroid City, I recognized some of the songs from that. And the last Paul song we're doing, Smoke Rings, is just great. What do they do? Those circles of And actually, funny enough, there's a song in that, uh, what's it called, Indian Love Call or something, that was in Mars Attacks, which was the Tim Burton Danny Elfman score. So I noticed all that stuff. Yeah, I like them, and the visual style of them is really cool. Now that you've been transcribing these songs and really sort of delving into them as you're getting ready for this performance, has that made you look at the movies a little differently or appreciated them maybe in a different way? Yeah, definitely. Um, Getting into the music in that detail gives me uh, even more of an appreciation for them. The subtlety of them is the thing. There's such a wide sort of culture in the music as well that, that you get the influences that what I found when I was transcribing it is that I'm listening to music and references that I'd never listened to before. And now I'm off down another uh, path thinking of, oh, I'm going to try that in my own music now this time. Ah. Yeah, so it's been great that way. All right, that is Chris Norby, composer and director of Cabaret. Chris, thanks for coming in. Thank you very much. And you are listening to the show.
Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. Dr. Julian Saperiti isn't your regular musician. He used to be. He actually spent most of his life in the music world. He was born in Nashville. His dad worked in the record industry, and his first career was as a touring musician. But he burned out on the road and, as he put it, fell backwards into academia. He started auditing classes at Vanderbilt, then went on to get a graduate degree at the University of Wyoming and a Ph.D. at Brown. He fell in love with history and teaching, but in the end, it all led him back to music. Music was just always where I came from. It's how I make sense of the world. It's how the world was initially made sense to me. The resulting project is called No-No Boy, a reference to the 1957 book of the same name and the history of Japanese Americans who were deemed disloyal during World War II when they answered no to questions 27 and 28 on the country's so-called loyalty questionnaire. Saperiti is Asian-American. His mother left Vietnam during the war, and it was when he was in Wyoming that inspiration first struck. No, No Boy is coming to ASU this weekend for a show and residency, an immersive multimedia concert featuring his unique approach to melding music and history. He spoke with my co-host Lauren Gilger more about it. Wyoming actually like offered these really unique, interesting histories that when I was on these rock climbing trips traveling around the desert or the mountains, there'd be these like historical markers of old Chinatowns, you know, for the railroad workers and the miners who would come out in the 1800s. And there was this old Japanese internment camp up uh, up outside Yellowstone. Yeah. All these people had been put during World War II. And, and I found a picture of a jazz band that started there. And I was like, wow, these histories are fascinating. And I'm kind of finding something of myself in these sort of misplaced Asian faces living in weird places like Wyoming, like, like myself. And, <laughs> and I was like, oh, but I want to I wanna share this with people. And, and if you know academics at all, we don't like to share our research. <laughs> um, we tend to write these really overly cited, super jargony tomes, these impenetrable books and journal articles. And we don't do a good job of relating our research to the general public by and large. So I thought, well, one thing I do know how to do is, is write a song. And, and I think some of these, these uh, stories could really be turned into interesting folk songs. You know, just the music that I came from growing up in Nashville, just a guy with a guitar traveling around real old school, you know, like Homer when, and like singing the <laughs> Odyssey or something. This is an old technology to tell histories. And I did that. And, and it's, it, got way out of hand uh, <laughs> to the point where I became a musician again. And now I can't even teach anywhere hmm. um, because I'm on tour so much. And uh, I'm just lucky that I get to do stuff like these residencies down at ASU where I get to do a concert and then do some workshops and, and talk about my sort of interesting methodology of how do you do real archival research or take family histories, mm -hmm. all this kind of interesting stuff. And then how do you produce art? that people can interact with, yeah. right? So I can go back to a place like where I was in school in Wyoming in some small town at a cowboy bar, places where I used to sing some songs. And you can kind of trick people into learning about the histories of their states that they never knew about. So, so walk us through that a little bit, like that that unconventional approach to making a song, right? Like folk music tells stories, right? But you're doing this in a particular sort of almost educational way, as you said, like you're kind of tricking people into learning the history of where they're from. How do you sneak these in there? It's just the way I'm going to translate my research, right? So when I was a kid, I wrote love songs because I was figuring out boy-girl stuff and I wasn't very good at it. And <laughs> I, that's how I had to process the world. 
this was kind of the same thing. I, I was studying all this fascinating stuff. It was like a second wave of, of inspiration. Let's go back to when I was living in Wyoming. I saw this photograph of this band called the Georgie Gawa Orchestra. And I interviewed all this, the surviving members. One of them became like a, a grandma to me. She told me her stories. I sang songs with her, visited her in Hawaii, dug through the archives and, and learned a book's worth of information about this band and what it was like to play music behind barbed wire and this incredible story. And it turned into this like 10 verse folk song called the best goddamn band in Wyoming. Under starlight, they dance behind barbed wire. Under the mountain, it meant something to say. Stuck between two countries in a fire. The best goddamn band in Wyoming. I want to talk a little bit about the instrumentation of this, because, I mean, it's folk music, as you said, and there's definitely a lot of that in there, but it definitely feels a little bit different, a little bit more contemporary. Tell us a little bit about the the way you approach the, the music side of this. Part of what I try to do, I'm on this label called Folkways. It's like the Smithsonian's record label. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's as institutionalized as, as one can get. And so I think one of the interventions of this project, if I can use an academic word, is that it's sort of speaking against the overwhelming kind of male whiteness of Americana, right? The sort of exclusiveness of what we consider traditional. And so to me, I think about, yeah, I use banjos and guitars and mandolins and violins, the stuff I grew up with when I was going to barn dances as a kid in Tennessee. But I also think about folk processes today. And the majority of the folk process, that is to sort of listen to music, then reinterpret music, is done through hip-hop production, is done through sampling, is, is done through chopping up beats. And so a lot of what I do is use sort of melding these two ideas of a more antiquated traditional folk process, you know, people in suspenders and overalls on a porch playing banjos mm-hmm. with kids on their laptops making music, which yeah. is, to me, kind of just as authentic and and even more valid in our society uh, because that's what they're doing Mm -hmm. and um, sort of melding those together. I think the most interesting thing for me is uh, as a historian, I love going to the field sites that I study. So the remnants of these old concentration camps or refugee camps where Vietnamese people like my mom might've had to stay in the seventies or Mm eighties. And I, I take a field recorder and I sort of bang on the barbed wire or the, the wooden floors of the barracks or, or, or record the ambient sounds of the water or the air. And then I turn those into instruments. Mm. Like those are the majority of the drum kits that you hear on my records. Um, ideally, if I do it well, you can't really tell you're listening to barbed wire as a hi-hat or, you know, an old piece of luggage as a kick drum, <laughs> but that's, that's what it is. And it's a way to like, at least for myself to, integrate the history I study into the music I make about that history. Yeah. So I guess like a sort of like a snake eating itself or something. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I love I love doing that stuff because it really tickles my academic intellectual historian's mind. But it's also a way of making music that I've never done before. It was it was only becoming a historian. They gave me these stories and the subject matter. But it also gave me new ways to make music. A song like Mekong Baby. This is a song that incorporates water sounds and rivers from Vietnam, where my mother grew up along the Mekong Delta. (laughs) 
it's sort of a lullaby within a war to this kind of memory of, of my mother's girlhood and her sister's girlhood and, and, and my, my grandmother in Vietnam and the forever leaving that these people had to do. So it's very bittersweet. It's a very succinct, threadbare lyric, but the music is where the evocation of history and uh, the story comes into place. You have those natural water sounds from Vietnam that I recorded on the one time I got to go over there. Mm. But you also have that mixed in with traditional Asian instruments that have been sort of affected and resynthesized into something a little off-kilter. You have a translation of the, the English lyric in the voice of this, in the Vietnamese-American community, pretty famous 80s pop singer named Tai Hien. I had her record that, so it's sort of this broken duet between someone of my mom's generation and myself. And then during one of the, the, the very quiet parts, you hear sort of gunfire and artillery fire, and that's actual archival wow. audio from the war itself. So it's, it's taking all of these things, the beauty and the natural wonder of the landscape in Vietnam and juxtaposing that against the terror of the war that was visited upon these people, on my people, and, and sort of mixing that all together into something hopefully beautiful, but also devastating in a way. Yeah. Now it's really interesting stuff. I really appreciate you coming on to talk about it. Julian Saparidi, a musician and scholar behind No No Boy, joining us. Julian, thank you again for coming on and best of luck. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And now for another installment in our series, Collections. Atria Maneshni's collection of Converse Chuck Taylors began with a fateful trip to Goodwill when she was in middle school. Since then, her collection has grown to feature more than a dozen pairs of the classic sneakers. Last year, Maneshni visited the KJZZ studios to show us some of her favorite pairs. I'm Atria Maneshni. I am a recent graduate of Arizona State University's Walter Cronkite School of Journalism, and I have 17 pairs of Chuck Taylor Converse. I've been collecting Converse since, I want to say, seventh grade in middle school. Um, I have everything from my first ever pair to my newest pair to my uh, really fun Devin Booker shoes that I just got, which was a very, very stressful morning, but I managed to get them, which was great. I'm a big shoe fanatic. I was always the girl who would have like the fun, cool shoes in school. And I used to be like the girl that would wear like just like regular like sneakers that you would run in. And then one day I went to Goodwill and I found this pair of green and pink Converse. I like to call them my watermelon shoes because that's what they look like. And then I religiously wore them like every single day in seventh grade, no matter what outfit I was wearing. Did it match? No, not at all. My sense of style, I hope, has improved since then. But I didn't care because I thought they were really cool looking shoes. And I guess I really just 
wanted to have like a fun little legacy of me of like being known as the shoe girl. Every time when someone thinks about me, the first thing that they think of is, oh, Converse. Like that's what she loves. That's what she likes to do. I don't think I've ever owned anything in my life that like has really made me feel like myself and until I started wearing Converse. I only own high-top Converse. I don't own low-top Converse. The white shoes I always reserve for, like, work, you know? Like, I feel like they go with my news anchor dresses to kind of give it a little bit of that professional style while still being comfortable and not having to wear heels. All the other, like, funky ones I like to wear when my outfit's really bland. For a lot of people, I feel like, you know, when they're putting on an outfit, it's all about like the accessory or like the purse or, you know, like the shirt that you wear. But for me, it's always been about the shoes, like making the shoes the centerpiece of every outfit. And then I realized that I started doing that like to other people. Like when someone would walk into the room, the first thing that I would look at is the shoes. And so like if I like those shoes and I'm like, OK, like this person's cool. They got like style. Some of the pairs have um, stories. So like the first one that I can see are my very beat up, um, just like regular black and white Chuck Taylors. I wore this all the way through um, eighth grade, basically. But because I wore them so much, they started falling apart. And so that year, instead of buying a yearbook, I decided to just kind of like give people a Sharpie and have them sign my shoes. And so like I'm looking around and all these people like I still talk to or some of them have like moved away from Arizona and are going to college and it's crazy. Um, Like my best friends are still on here. A lot of these shoes, actually, they come from Iran. So my mom, when she would go back, she found this, like, big shopping mall in Iran, and all they sell is Converse, which was just, like, heaven for me. Um, And I remember one trip when I went back home, I, like, went into the store, and the guy was like, okay, you're the girl. You're the girl who your mom continuously buys Converse for. I'm like so glad I'm finally meeting you in person. And it was really cool. So like a lot of the unique styles that I have here, you actually are not going to find on that Converse website. That also made it really fun for people when they would ask me like, hey, where'd you get your shoes? And I'd be like, oh, actually, you can't get them because I got them back home from Iran. Sorry. Um, Not sorry. That was Atria Maneshni describing her collection of Converse Chuck Taylors. You can see photos of her collection and hear more in our collection series at kjzz.org. And that'll do it for this Friday edition of the show. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix. Have a great rest of your day. Have a terrific weekend. Hope to have you right back here on Monday. That's it for this episode of The Show Podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.